Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. This is the Slow Poisoner. I come to you from the future with these words of warning. It's a hot horror planet. It's a hot horror planet. It's a hot Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 73. This episode is sponsored by the fine folks at Lee's Comics. Attention comic book fans, Lee's Comics of Mountain View, California has closed. But here's the good news. Lee's Comics eBay store is still going strong with over 10,000 vintage comics, the majority of which are now on sale, for half off. Choose from Lee's huge stock of golden, silver, bronze, and modern age comics, and specializing in Silver Age Marvel titles. You can count on friendly service, accurate grading, and quick, secure shipping backed by a money-back guarantee. To check out Lee's eBay store, go to eBay. Click Advanced Search to the left of the search bar, scroll down to Sellers, and enter Lee's Comics, Inc., period. That's L-E-E-S-C-O-M-I-C-S. I-N-C, period. Don't forget the period. Lee's Comics is shipping daily with no delays. New items daily. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast and get a free bonus gift. Welcome to Season 3. We have a new theme song by Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb, and he will be a returning guest in a few weeks to discuss his new songs and his magazine, Freaky. The pandemic continues, and that's why I decided to record a few more episodes that will last at least until the end of June for your enjoyment. As always, please let me know how I'm doing with your comments and subscriptions and Patreon support. You know my other books, but if you don't, go to Amazon and follow author Mark Arnold. Make sure it's me and my books. You'll know because the books are all about animation, comic books, and music. Any other subjects are most likely by another Mark Arnold. All of my books are available in hardback, paperback, and ebook, except for the two cracked history books and my first Disney book, which don't have hardcover versions at this time. Since I assume you're still self isolating, this is a good time to catch up on my earlier books. As for new projects, I'm still waiting for the Warren Kremer book and the second TTV book to come back to the publisher, and I'm working on my Mad book and second Disney book in the meantime. I'm also finishing up four articles for Back Issue Magazine and I'm selecting cartoons for a new collection by Bruce Bollinger for which I will also write a foreword. I'm supposed to appear at some point with my co-author Michael A. Ventrella to discuss our Monkeys books on Zilch, a Monkeys podcast, but it hasn't been scheduled yet. I'll let you know. Our guest today has had an extensive career in publishing. He currently is the editor and publisher of the American Bystander, a humor magazine available by subscription only. Here he is, Michael Gerber. Okay, on the phone today I have Michael Gerber. How are you? 
I'm great. I'm great. Nice to talk with you. Okay, very good. And I guess tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to be the, I guess, editor and publisher of the American Bystander. Is that the correct positions yeah, you have? <laughs> sure. Sure. Everything. Doer of everything mm-hmm. for the magazine. Um, how did I get to be here? Um, well, that's a huge long question, <laughs> uh, a huge long answer to that question, because I'm one of those people who kind of figured out what I wanted to do at a very young age or decided that I wanted to do something and just would not listen to reason, um, which is more accurate. Uh, so, you know, when I was a kid, this was this was back in the, the 70s, when I was a kid, uh, five and six years old, I was reading Mad Magazine, which was very good back then, right. and National Lampoon, which was very good back then, mm-hmm. and was... Um, would actually tear apart the issues and and tape them back together. You know, I'm six years old. Okay. Uh, to get them in the order that I thought that they should be. Like, oh, I don't like that article. I like this article. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And my mom was in art school. She was raising me by herself. She was in art school in St. Louis. We lived in St. Louis. <laughs> mm-hmm. And all of her friends could draw. And so when they would come, when they would come uh, to visit, I would grab them and be like, okay, listen, I got something I need you to draw. In the first panel, I want this. In the second panel, I want this. And it, it w- would really be scripts. It's exactly what I do today. Mm. Um, so you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of years in between. I I uh, wrote a humor column for my high school newspaper. My high school newspaper's a, a kind of a famous one uh, outside of Chicago in Oak, it's a place called Oak Park. Um, Ernest Hemingway used to write for the high school newspaper there. So, uh, so you wrote a humor column for them. For them, that plus good grades got me into Yale. Yale's humor magazine, Yale's version of the Harvard Lampoon, which is actually older, believe it or not, mm-hmm. um, was was in and out of business after Gary Trudeau left in 1970. So I resurrected it and put it on its feet for good. Cool. And then you know it was like I, at the end of college. And this is where I'll stop. But uh, <laughs> at the end of college, there was—I really had a fork in the road. I could either be a historian, which is what I love, which is a love of mine, uh, or I could be a comedy writer. And I felt I had some experiences that made me think that being a historian, I couldn't necessarily talk about the things I wanted to talk about or say the truths I wanted to talk about, um, because my love of his- my the history I love is the history of the 60s and 70s mm-hmm. and that was still too recent for, for, for people to you know the, the for historians to really get in, into the nitty gritty of that so I decided to be a comedy writer mm. and um, then went down to New York and worked in magazine business for a bunch of years worked in book publishing published a parody of Harry Potter which sold a zillion copies mm-hmm. and was not you know had kind of been like well uh, you know I would have meeting after meeting after meeting I was a magazine consultant uh, in my 20s, I was specializing in humor. So these big magazine companies would come in and they would say, we want to attract college kids or we want to put humor in our mix. This would be Scholastic or, um, I forget, the National Improvement, certainly Spy, certainly. Right. You know, people would call me up and I would go in and I would kind of analyze their publication and say, these are the problems I see. This is probably why you're not getting the, the response you want. Um, but we never got anywhere with that. They would mm. they would listen to me. They go, oh, okay, okay, and then they would just keep doing the same thing. Um, so I I had kind of thrown my hands up with both magazine and book publishing. 
uh, and was dealing with a, a, a chronic illness. In 2011, when Brian McConaughey uh, called me up and said, you know, I've got this, I, I tried to start this magazine in 1982, which was sort of a half halfway between the National Lampoon and the New Yorker. Hmm. If you were going to do a magazine like that, how would you do it? And I was so, it was a really interesting kind of question from a publishing standpoint. <laughs> um, and so for, I was so sick, I could only really talk to him at about, for, you know, for 15 minutes at a time. And so he and my third partner, Alan Goldberg, they would call and I would say, okay, it's got to be priced like this <laughs> because it can't be advertising support, it has to be reader supported. And they'd say, why? And I'd give them the reason. Well, this is the reason. So, okay, if it has to be priced like that, it has to really deliver this kind of experience. It has to feel more like a book than a magazine. Mm -hmm. Well, if that's the case, then it has to be printed on nice paper. And, you know, slowly but surely, over about a year, I was putting into pieces all the theory behind the American Bystander Now. Mm -hmm. And then, then as I got well, as I got better... I was able to start doing designs, do full type tests. See, because for me, it's not just the editing, it's also like the whole look of the book, and it's more of an art, a tourist, kind of like a film director's way of doing a magazine. Right, right. So, um, so slowly but surely, you know, putting together a full design, you know, type tests, well, what do we want the, what do we want it to feel like to the reader? What do we want it to, to evoke? What are, what are the, um, you know, like what kind of magazines do my con my contributors, like people like uh, Brian and George Meyer and Jack Handy and all those people, what kind of magazines really can publish their kind of material particularly well? Mm -hmm. Okay, then what kind of technology are we going to have to use to print it efficiently? Okay, and then you take both of those, and then that's that's how you get the design that we that I came up with for Bystander, and that took about a year mm -hmm. of of full type tests, meaning like you lay out full pages with with type and um, with different sizes, different kerning, all sorts of stuff, and wow. it's really it's it's cool. Mm -hmm. But um, but yeah, so then I I was planning on creating this magazine and giving it to Brian and mm -hmm. saying you know here you go because I really wasn't. I was, you know, getting over this illness and was like, okay, the second half of my life is starting. I was 45, whatever I was. Mm -hmm. And um, and he looked at it after I did the first test issue. And he looked at it and he said, oh, you'd never do this. You should do this. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> else. But um, because, because the magazine business had really been nothing but sadness for me. You know, I never got the opportunity. I, I never, you know found the friendly billionaire to give me a staff and a, mm -hmm. so I, I I wasn't under any illusions about what this would be you know it would be a lot of work um, but we did we had a we had a potential deal uh, with a guy who was going to give us a million dollars if we um, got some sons and daughters of Chinese businessmen and put them on our staff so they could get h1 visas mm. And that fell through, luckily so, because I think we all would have gone to jail. Um, <laughs> and so I was sitting there with the first issue, and I was like, well, I, you know, we've been working on this for so many years, I don't want it to just never be seen. So we kick-started it, 
But I didn't have any sense that we'd make our Kickstarter mm-hmm. or that there was this great, you know, appetite for something like this, for a print humor magazine, classic print humor magazine. Mm-hmm. But the moment that we launched it, it was really clear there was an appetite. And all of a sudden, not only did I have a magazine, like I had a magazine that I had to do issue number two and three and four. Right, right. <laughs> so, you know, now we're, I just shipped 14 yesterday. I'm just about to send the PDF to all our PDF subscribers. Um, you know, but it's it's really been piece by piece. It's right. happened that way, piece by piece. Now, but, okay, go ahead. <laughs> I'm just going to say, you know, but uh, but it really is, the, the, the way that this has gone down has been readers have loved it. Readers have called me and readers right. have emailed me. When is this going to happen? I want another. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so that's really what I get my uh, vim and vigor for from is is people going, oh, this is great. I remember when magazines were like this. Oh, or, oh, that was a great piece or, or whatever. No. Now, my major question is... Um did you ever try to do it in the traditional way, or is that with the million dollars and the H one visa and all that stuff uh, of just newsstand distribution, or did you dismiss that right off the bat? Well, I'll tell you this: um, the whole corporate magazine. There's there's basically one model for corporate magazines, um, which it depends on scale and it depends on a lot of capital. So you know, the only people who can really run this model are people who are willing to put five million or ten million dollars into the front end yeah. of the of the snitch machine and then at the end you know uh you hope that it, it it actually how it works is you put the money in at the beginning and you're hoping that within by year three you've broken even and by year five you're making money right so um it it's it's very capital intensive for example, this is one thing. I did a parody of the Wall Street Journal back in 1996, and we could never get it on the newsstand because uh, I, I remember having lunch uh, in New York with a guy who was a newsstand consultant, a very nice guy. And I, But I bought him lunch, so maybe that's why he was being nice. <laughs> and his first question to me was, well, do you have $10,000 in unmarked bills, like paper bag money? And I said, What? And he said, "Well, if you're going to get, if you want to get this on in in the airports, in the airport newsstand, that's the first thing you're going to have to have." And I was like, "Oh, I'm a kid from the suburbs. I didn't realize that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't realize that the Corleone family was still around." Um, but but yeah, so so um, magazine publishing is like is 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 like that in that mm-hmm. you know. Only big companies really have the capital and the relationships to get something on the newsstand. And when you get something on the newsstand, there's really not very much way to um, track how your sales are. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you ship 100 copies, this is it wouldn't be 100 copies. It would be called your draw. If yeah. your draw was 100,000 copies mm-hmm. and in three months your newsstand people all your returns are all your newsstand people said you sold 27,500 copies mm-hmm. um, what do you want us to do with the rest do you want us to ship them back to you well no of course you don't because it's going to cost you to ship them mm-hmm. and pulp them so you go no nah, I don't want them and if you sold say you sold say you sold 75,000 instead mm-hmm. you don't know mm-hmm. so it's it's all a, it's all a cash business it's very um 
crooked in that way. At least it used to be. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's so small time now because yeah. there's so many fewer newsstands that there's less corruption in it. Yeah. But but back then, but back in the '90s, even mm-hmm. it was definitely like that. It was definitely like if you don't have a lot of capital and or a big brother, meaning it's not a Hearst publication or Hachette or Condé or whatever else, right. um, you're not going to have the relationships and the leverage to get your thing on the newsstand. And so, and that had changed with consolidation. You know, Tony Hendra was able to do, Tony Hendra and a bunch of people were able to do a parody of a Wall Street Journal in 1982 and it sold a ton. Right. Um, but but it was but the business was less consolidated then, so you, so they could get on the newsstand. Mm. So yeah, I mean, I, I, the first thing with bystander I had to do was figure out well, if everything's can I swear on this podcast? Sure, sure. If everything's fucked, like if the whole <laughs> like the whole way magazines get to consumers is totally screwy, well then how are we going to do this? And um, and so I I drew on a lot of years of of trying to do things on the on a shoestring and, mm-hmm. and and still you know still with bystander you know we're doing okay yeah um but you know it's it's I, I i'm always asking for more subscribers because the more subscribers i have i can start paying my writers and artists a decent wage but um it's it's always you know we're doing it with patreon and it's always complicated yeah and you know people who are of a certain age Expect that. Well, why can't I just go to the bookstore and pick one up? Right. Well, yes, you you know you can, but um, you know that requires a kind of scale. Print humor, print anything, is not a mass medium anymore, and yeah. so the the distribution structures that really work on you know you jam out five million copies every month and you sell two million. But because of economies of scale, you're printing them in such a way so that you can pulp three million copies every month, and it's no big deal, and it's sort of like passive publicity or whatever the numbers are. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's 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 nuts. It's an it's a it's a nuts it's a nuts thing to do. But but because people love it, I I try to keep doing it. Right. Well, amazingly, because of the recent events of the. Uh pandemic um the 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 way you chose for distribution is probably beneficial since um yes um literally where i went since you know we were supposed to speak a little bit earlier um is i said well he's not calling i'll just go out because barnes and noble was open last week it wasn't today and so you know i usually go once a week and i said well let's go out and you know i was going to go after our talk but i said well yeah um i'll go now and that's where i was and it's like nope we're closed and it's like ah you know i knew that would happen so uh got a bite to eat and then came back home and it's like you know now we're talking and it's like you know adjustments for everything but you know in your case well, it's kind of like business as usual because you, I, I don't know if you do it at home, but I mean, you I still do. have the distribution uh, yeah, set I up. <laughs> I, I do do it at home. I'm, yeah. I do it in my front room, believe it or not, right. um, which, which, listeners, if you have not read the magazine, you you should read it. I'll send you a PDF copy. <laughs> you, it looks like a professional magazine. It, it is. Like yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll vouch for you. That's why I'm <laughs> yeah. talking to you. It's a very good magazine. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, and, I mean, and that's the thing. Like, I was talking to somebody, not to get off on this tangent, but I think yeah. it's worth talking about. I was talking to somebody about my college years, mm. and uh, and I said, you know, I didn't know anybody or do. I, I, I mean, I was in the, the paper and had a following and all that sort of stuff at Yale. 
Um, so I was known, but but I wasn't, and, and I had my you know my my close friends. But most of the time I spent was sitting in you know sweaty basement rooms in front of these ridiculously ancient Macs. This was you know 1990. Um, you couldn't even really process a photograph with a with a Macintosh, just barely. But in any case, you know, so bystander is really the fruit of. 25 or 30 years of tricks mm-hmm. like oh I can get an illustration for that this way or oh I can write a piece about that and that will work because with a regular magazine people will pitch you know writers will pitch okay. they'll say you know have you ever who knows the real story behind Altoids I'd like to write a story about Altoids would you be interested in doing that I, that's not pitching I, <laughs> since I can't pay for kill fees, since I can't say, yes, Mark, go write the story on Altoids, you write me a story, and it's, I don't know, it's slash fiction instead or whatever, and I go, oh, I can't I can't run this, but here's a kill fee. Right. That's how it would go. Mm-hmm. Since I can't pay kill fees, I can't, I don't really get pitched very much. And so, once again, I get, I've structured the magazine so that, unlike a regular magazine, which is really you know, 12 long-stemmed red roses. It's mm. the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Vanity Fair is kind of the same, a, a magazine of the same thing from beginning to end to create an ambiance and experience. With Bystander, it's more that I'm trying to create, uh, you know, a bouquet of wildflowers. And every wildflower is, is pretty, and you arrange them in a way that makes them all look nice, like great. But it's it's very diverse. So... I had to come up with a magazine that would somehow, well, well, Meryl Marco wants to do a cartoon about her her friend uh, who works in an animal shelter. And Margaret Cho wants to write about body image. And Brian McConaughey wants to write an article about um, a a piece of fiction set at a nude beach. And (laughs) blah, 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 blah. So it's it's interesting because that's a totally different way of doing magazines, too. Mm Mm-hmm. and I don't know if it always works, but but it is it's an interesting challenge. It's an interesting challenge. Now, how do you get your contributors? I mean, did you just go down the National Lampoon uh, uh, <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> editorial page and say, "I'm calling Ed Sabitsky, I'm calling yeah, Sherry Flanagan." Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> Sherry and I are good friends. Yeah, um, uh, and, and this is the other thing. Uh, well, okay, how to get my people. Um, <laughs> some came from Brian. Mm-hmm. Uh, some had come from came from me, working in the business for 25 years. Okay. People know me. Um, and then between those two people, then you're like, well, who do you think you should be part of this? But here was the other part of it. It was like, they need to be a mensch. Mm-hmm. Like, life is too short and the money's too thin here for us to deal with because if you hear stories about like the National Lampoon or whatever it's just it's people at each other's throats and I'm like I this is we can't do it like this right. it's not going to work if right. we do it like this and and so the people that have been attracted to the venture because I mean I don't know if you can hear this but I'm I'm a pretty jovial easygoing guy you know <laughs> Brian is Brian is nice mm-hmm. laid back um, so you know uh once we gathered a sort of hardcore of people who were menchy, um, <laughs> uh, then other people were attracted. You know, and somebody like Sherry, I forget, I forget, I'm sure I just wrote her, I'm sure I just wrote her or called her and said, hey Sherry, <laughs> uh, I'm working with some, I'm working with Brian and M.K. Brown and some other people on this thing. And 
and uh, and then we got talking and now we're great friends but um you know that's the other thing is that bystander really it it runs on the goodwill of all parties mm. myself you know not making nearly as much money as i would like to right. enough really not even making enough mm-hmm. um making you know and and the contributors certainly not getting paid as much as they should be paid right. should pay them 10 times as much at least mm-hmm. um, and then the readers too the readers are great like it's very much it's a very much like a club yeah that's kind of well that's very much like a club and that's what we're trying to create we're trying to create a a place where people love this stuff can come together and enjoy it mm-hmm. um, and so when you said hey uh, you want to talk about stuff I was like oh yes of course because you're part of the club <laughs> right, you know? like, right every once in a while there'll be somebody it'll either be a contributor or sometimes a subscriber who will not who will want like who will see oh you have all these people from National Improvement oh you know is it going to be sort of PG O'Rourkean jokes about black people or whatever you know like <laughs> what the lampoon kind of descended into in the late 70s and, and right. 80s right and and so they're very disappointed right <laughs> they read the vice and they're like oh this is you know there's no jokes about drunken irishmen in it right. um <laughs> you know and so that's also that's one of the maybe the biggest challenge yeah is that the audience is so diverse now mm-hmm and and people are sensitive and rightly so to a lot of stuff that in the past people were less sensitive to. Right. So it's um that's a challenge and that's once again where you've got to have this goodwill mm-hmm. because if occasionally when somebody writes me and says oh, I was offended by this piece or you know you screwed up or whatever, mm-hmm. my response is always to say, well, I'm sorry about that. That's not our intention. Um, you know, I'll take that under advisement, and next time I do this, I'll do it better. Uh, that's not the attitude that you get from Spy. That's not the attitude you get from Lampoon. Mm-hmm. You know, they were basically like, fuck you. Yeah. You yeah. Know, <laughs> we're doing this, and fuck you. And, and <clears throat> that's, that works. Old, that's an old media stance that works, because we're the editors. We're getting paid $200,000 a year. We have an office in New York, and you're a writer from... Winnetka, Illinois. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, because of the digital world, we're all on the same kind of playing field. Right. Or, or, or you know, like you can you can tweet at the president. You know? Right. <laughs> so, so, so I. That's another reason that I really felt like we. You have to be nice. This has to be a pleasant. Right. It can be funny. It can be acid. It can be acerbic. Um. But but the affect of the magazine and the affect of me as the editor is 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 genial, um, in because we have to recognize, we have to respect the people who are consuming the product. Right. Now it, it strikes me, and I I don't know if I'm unique in this opinion, but you know, is kind of a more sophisticated version of the National Lampoon. Yeah. <laughs> so there's no excessive nudity and just cr- <laughs> complete crassness all the time or just yeah, yeah, yeah. totally politically incorrect. It has its share of it at times, but I mean, it's yeah. kind of like if you, you know, if Lampoon was for kids in high school or early college, this was like for graduates, you know, kind of like, yeah. That, you well, know. Yeah, you know, part of that was I was looking at the stuff, that the kind of stuff that Brian likes to write. Mm-hmm. And so I was making a magazine for Brian and Jack and George and Merrill and 
you know, and they're of the different generation. They're not of uh, Michael O'Donoghue, Doug Kenny. Yeah. That's cool, right? I was wondering um, what would happen if they were both around working for you. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I think Doug, I think I think there's no question. Um, actually, you know, Brian and I were just talking about this. Brian has a diary oh, okay. that has, from that time, that has um, information about his, you know, stuff about uh, uh, Michael O'Donoghue mm-hmm. and a couple of other people. And, um, you know, because Brian was around those folks. He was an editor at the very right. beginning. right. So he just said to me yesterday, you're going to like this. I said, what? He said, I, I'm going to write up an article about these people. <laughs> and I said, can you get it to me so we can put it in the next issue, 15? I think people would love it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so as far as as far as far Doug is concerned, I don't know what kind of writer Doug would, be, would have become, but I, I suspect that Doug would have been very, very easily fit into the bystander. Yeah. Because Doug was warm, you know. Um, yeah. Doug was of all the writers in the classic Lampoon, Lampoon. Doug was the one that I really grooved on, mm. and that's you know, uh, Board of the Rings, the, the book that he did with Henry uh, Henry Beard, is is a direct forebear of my Barry Trotter book, mm. and on purpose, you know, because <laughs> it was kind of like I love that book, um, and I was writing a bit of an homage to it. Uh, one of the things about Doug's death. Uh, oh, that's the other person, Harold Ramis. Uh, yeah. Brian's going to write about Harold Ramis. There were a couple of people that were sort of... They were softer than O'Donoghue. They were warmer and softer than O'Donoghue. Mm-hmm. They could be acerbic. They could be cutting. You know, they could write... Like Kenny could write that first blowjob piece, that famous first blowjob piece. Right. <laughs> which is pretty horrifying when you read it <laughs> now. Um but but there's also there's he's you also are always glimpsing him in his material. Uh, uh, O'Donoghue not as much. But remind me to tell you something interesting about O'Donoghue uh, after I finish saying this. Okay. Um, Kenny and Belushi were, for my money, they were the they were the, and Gilda Radner is one of these people and Ramus too. Mm-hmm. But Kenny and Belushi were they had this common touch they had this warmth they had this charmingness mm-hmm. that really drove the comedy and so when they died and you know Kenny died in 80 and Belushi died in 82 the people that were left people like O'Donoghue people like P.J. O'Rourke um, Henry had he retired basically yeah. um, you know the people that had, had were left were were only one facet of the Lampoon's situation. And Brian is a perfect example of this, too. Brian is very... Brian um, Brian is so lovable as a person <laughs> that I did a whole magazine for him. You know what I mean? like, And that is common in Brian's life. People, people love Brian. Brian's a lovable person. And, and he's, he's a unique talent himself. And it's not a surprise that like he and... Belushi were, were um, which he always says Belucci, so maybe that's how you say it. Um, maybe that's how John said it. But it's not a surprise that, that he and uh, John were friends, that he and Harold Ramis were friends for many years. Um, so, you know, I, 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 it's not that I, this is the other thing. 
if Michael O'Donoghue were writing today, mm-hmm. I don't think he'd be the same writer because it, it, the internet has taken that shock so far. Right. That that the thing that he was doing, it was a technique that he did. Yeah. That he would he would cause a lot of conflict and upsetness in the in the it's really in the body of the reader you feel it in your body mm-hmm. and you don't know what to do with this emotion so you laugh yeah you know uh, I once asked Dennis Perrin his his biographer uh, O'Donoghue's biographer is a friend of mine mm. okay and Dennis is a guy you should talk to just, just for this or for whatever he's fascinating and super smart okay um, but the thing about Dennis so he wrote the biography of Michael O'Donoghue right and I I once called Dennis about something else, and we were talking, and I said, wait, 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 Dennis, i got to ask you, was was O'Donoghue into S&M? <laughs> and, uh, and he said, why do you, he, he, like, stopped. And he said, why do you ask? And I said, well, because I was reading his material lately, and it doesn't seem to be about humor. <laughs> it, seems to, it seems to be about S&M, these pieces, a couple of these pieces. And he said, well... Uh, you know, of course, we never had a conversation about it, but I did find in his files certain pieces of pornography that suggested that perhaps he was interested in that. I don't know if that's true. I don't know, yeah. you know, but it was so. <laughs> so the thing about Michael O'Donoghue, Kenny, from his college stuff to the, the day he died, I'm sure. Um, his goal was to make you laugh. Right. Like, that was the thing he loved to do. And a charming, warm, witty fellow. Uh, O'Donoghue, I don't think he was really trying to make people laugh a lot of the time. <laughs> I, think he, I think laughter was the response. I think that humor magazines were free and easy after the 60s and the underground newspapers. Um, I think that they, that's where he could fit into, but... But uh, in general, I don't think he was a comedy writer. And I think that, that that by defining Michael O'Donoghue and the school of Michael O'Donoghue as comedy writing, I think comedy writing has done itself a real disservice. I think it's gone, um, it's gone down some dead ends as a result. Right. And a lot of people who are in the business, who are comedy writers, quotes, are really, in, in, in quotes, what they really are is, really angry people right. <laughs> right and that's okay you know like I'm sure Doug Kenny was enraged I'm sure Groucho Marx Marx was you know enraged um <laughs> but they didn't but but there's a sublimation stage that the great ones can do and do do yep. and that a lot of sort of mid-level comedy writers it's, it's tough to be around them because they're just fucking furious all the time <laughs> so I, I am a big fan of O'Donoghue's stuff but it is yeah, me true too. Me too. Th- it is true though that he seemed to be more intent to try to shock than really yeah. try to get you to laugh yeah, yeah. or oh, sorry go on that, that was basically my point you know I mean yeah. the typical thing that he did on the Lampoon Radio Hour and then later on Saturday Night Live where mm-hmm. he says uh, I believe uh, fill in the blank celebrity Ed Sullivan or whatever if they yeah. had 10 inch spikes stuck yes. in their eyes yes. I think it would yes. go something like this like now it's hysterically funny and he's screaming and writhing in pain yeah. and everything but at the same yeah. time 
is it really that funny? It's more a shock, shock yeah. value. You know? Yeah, and and also too, like in in a world where, you know, O'Donoghue's famous line about that was that he wrote jokes for a world that was ready to nuke itself out. <laughs> and and I get that. Yeah. And I get that. But um, but I would also have to say that Michael O'Donoghue were alive today, I think he would have seen the limitations of that stance. Yeah. In that. Things have not gotten better since 1975, in my opinion, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily think that the comedy that that I mean, if if you love it, if it makes you laugh, like great, that's that's the point of it, you know, like that's a good thing. But but as a, philosophically, when I think to myself, you know, what is what does that do? How do you make it? What do you have to twist yourself up into to make it? I mean, not for nothing, Michael Donnie, you died at 50 or whatever. I mean, it's there's there's that aspect too. He was mm-hmm. this kind of material was taking a bite out of him. Mm-hmm. Oh, but I wanted to ask you, um, mm-hmm. what do you think about Terry Southern? Um, well, I like some of his films. I really adore Magic Christian. I have to admit, it took a few viewings for me to kind yeah. of get what was going on. But yeah. also because the first time I saw it, I think I was like. 12 or something. Yeah, right, right, right. And, and I, I, we could talk about this, which is fine. I, I don't have to talk completely about Bystander. I, yeah, I, sure. I understand you're a huge Beatles fan. Well, I am too. So I'm it's a like, huge, huge Beatles fan. Yeah, and yes, so yes. Um, I became a fan about 1977, and so I started yes. looking for as much as, as I could. And one time yes. they showed uh, Magic Christian on like the midnight movie or something on yes. TV and yes. so yes. we had a VCR back in the beta days and right. I taped it and I oh, you know it was very cut like the the final scene where all the businessmen are waiting around in the shit pool basically yes, yes. Uh, was completely cut out so that shows you you know they couldn't show everything on TV yes, at least right. at this time but um, uh, but it's like at first I don't know if I liked it I was just watching it because hey Paul McCartney wrote the theme song Badfinger yeah, right. performed it and right. Ringo's in it and I like Peter Sellers from the Pink Panther right. movies and but slowly over time I it, it clicked and I go I get it you know to, it's mm-hmm. the extremes of what people will do for money I don't know if that's mm-hmm. answering your question about whether I like Terry Southern sure, but I mean sure it's it. like I've seen Candy too and that's really still kind of disjointed for me and then I've never seen Candy beyond sure. that I mean Terry Southern has been affiliated with other things I can't think of what they are off the top of my head but in general I I admire the guy and you know yeah. what he's done so well the reason that I ask you that is yeah. that really O'Donohue and Terry Southern are you know they're two peas in a pod right to me. right okay um, you know and so what what Od- so so to understand Michael O'Donohue mm-hmm. you have to understand Terry Southern's milieu which is the beats you know, this is the thing. It's the beatniks, right? And so it's it's sort of shocking the bourgeoisie and all of that, all of that stuff. Right. Um, what I think is interesting about Michael O'Donoghue in that way, we should. Well, I'll get back to the Beatles in a second. But <laughs> what's interesting about Michael O'Donoghue in that way is, you know, before Lampoon came along, he was doing theaters and th- theatrical things and happenings downtown in Soho and stuff mm-hmm. in the early seventies. So you know, whatever you want to say, like. Whatever you want to say about the people who take who've taken Michael Donahue as a leaping off point for their material, mm-hmm. um, Michael Donahue had a lot of interesting shit going on in his head. He was like a real artist, right? Like, like that's what I 
that's what I think is interesting. And I, that's that's definitely something. There's a, there's a illustrator named Ted Juflos, um, who is in The Bystander, and his stuff is is sort of goth and you know O'Donoghue esque in certain ways. Um, because of that, you know, it's like humor magazines in the '60s. If this was the realist, Paul Paul Krasner's right. Paul Krasner worked for Bystander. Right? Paul Krasner's realist, or um, you know, the underground papers, the underground comics. There was just sort of sense of like comedy as being a place where the rules were relaxed, so you could be outrageous and you could be scatological and you could be violent or whatever. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I actually think that was all very salutary uh, because you had a strong um, mainstream, you had strong central authority, you know, and so so the idea of an underground that was saying, no, we're going to, you know, we're going to draw pictures of penises and all sorts of, and we're going to publish them and all the rest of that stuff. I think that was good. I think that was <laughs> what was needed back in 1965 or whatever. Right. Um, but I think in 2020, I think it's so clear that the, that the fissure, that the, that the, the difficulties of the, of the culture are not things like, or maybe they will become, given things like FESTA and SOSTA, uh, the, the new uh, laws that are being passed. You know, generally people can say what they want to say in that regard, but uh, if you don't have $5 million, you can't start a magazine. Right. Like that's, you know, uh, and if, if there was a period of time where you could get on the internet and if you were, your website was good, you could get a great deal of traffic. Now that's not really the case anymore. It really is a reflection of a sort of, um, you know, what's a what are the big general interest magazines on the internet? Well, there's the New Yorker, I guess. <laughs> there's and there's Slate. I mean, the internet's whole spiel was you're not going to get paid. Nobody's going to get paid anything, but it's going to be this incredibly diverse, wonderful bunch of information. Well, what in fact we are getting is we're getting nobody's getting paid except the, for the people who make the platforms. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's getting more and more of a monoculture. And that is, to my mind, that's why Bystander exists, because I kept waiting for somebody to do a magazine like this in print yeah. or do it online, and nobody freaking did it. And it was like, well, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess I'll finally do it. I'm glad you did it. I mean, it's like now we don't even have Mad anymore. It's it's subscription only, yes. I guess. But it's yes. 90% reprint, you know, and it's like... I don't know. I've been trying to figure out, since that was announced last July, I've been trying to figure out how to how to get my hands on Mad and uh, install a better printing model, publishing model, so that it can make money. I think it could make a significant amount of money. Mm-hmm. And so I've been leading a team that's been trying to buy that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we haven't been able to get anywhere. I don't think AT&T wants to sell it. Yeah. And, you know, to be honest, I, I looked at the, I'm looking here at uh, the April 2020 issue, which is the first reprint issue, and it seemed fine. At the, the, yeah. uh, I think her name is Susie Hutchinson who does it. She seems like she's doing a great job. Um, you know, I, I, yes, I'm, I'm with you. I, I would like to see it yeah. be all new material. The whole thing about Bystander is I'm trying to figure out ways to put money in pockets of writers and artists. Right. Because if you can't put money in somebody's pocket in this culture, very few people are going to do it. Yeah. And very few people are going to do it enough to get good at it. Mm-hmm. So the level of a, pract- a practitioner is going to go down. 
Right. Oh, I, one thing before we get off on something else, the Beatles. So <laughs> I love the Beatles, but one of the reasons I love the Beatles is they're funny. Mm-hmm. And just as you're talking about, if you're really, really interested in the Beatles, well, you immediately fall into Monty Python. Yes. And you immediately fall into The Goon Show and Peter yes. Sellers. Yes. And you immediately fall into Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. Mm-hmm. Uh, my favorite comedy of all time is Bedazzled, you know, that 67 yep. <laughs> Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. Mm-hmm. Um, although Rife of Brian is, is pretty wonderful, too. So the interesting thing about the Beatles is that, or the, Run- or the Runnels, I mean, the Runnels are a kind of parody. It's, it's, as, it's as good as National Lampoon ever did, but it's English. It's, it's mm-hmm. slightly different. Um, but, of course, then the documentary is, the documentary, the Runnels documentary, is the only melding of the Lampoon people and the Monty Python people that I know of. And, 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 I, I, S- and, and SNL, I guess that's considered Lampoon. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, Brian once said that to me, that this is why I bring it up, is he once said that we were looking at what the, Lamp- what the Monty Python people were doing and thinking, yeah, they're kind of doing what we're doing, but slightly different. It's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> And amazingly to me, that Ruddle special when it first aired flopped. You know, I know, right? And I watched I it. I had, I taped it, and I loved it. My dad, who wasn't a Beatles fan, still isn't. Uh, he he knew their basic story, but he didn't get it. He di- he didn't think it was funny at all. He said about the only thing that he thought was funny was a scene with Dan Aykroyd where he's smoking a cigarette and he gave up the Beatles and he kills himself a second later. He thought that was kind of <laughs> funny, but. Uh, and just occasional throwaway lines like the tight trousers and you know yes. stuff like that. But most of yes. it, he thought was just junk. And he says, "I don't understand why you like this show." And I realized probably the reason why it flopped is, and you you were a fan then. And I don't know when do you became a Beatles fan, but you know for me it was around '77, so it was right before this yes. special. Um, at that time, it was. The real Beatles story wasn't really commonly known. I mean, people knew Sgt. Pepper, people knew Abbey right. Road, but they didn't right. necessarily knew, know, oh, they went in, to India at this time, and they did right. this movie and did this right. tour. You know, the anthology changed all that, and I think now if they did the Ruddles in the first place, it would be a big hit. But, you know, it, over time it's become a hit anyway because, you know, it's kind of an underground cult classic, and, you know, just because they got it right. You know, apparently, I think Neil and Isser Eric Idol or both saw an early cut of like the long and winding road. That's exactly (laughs) what I was just about to say to you. I'm glad you said it because I'm going to be like, oh, listen, I've got to drop some Beatle knowledge so you know it. And also, I I believe they watched that uh, David Frost special that aired like in 75 or 76 mm. and uh, because that? that one has Qu- Queenie Epstein on it and it's just they do that verbatim practically except they really? s- she has the tight trousers fit you know? <laughs> but so, it's uh, so it's I'm, I'm looking at I'm googling it right now David Frost Beatles special yeah I forgot the I've name of it I've never seen it yeah uh, um, it, wow. it, it originally aired like in 75 or 76 and then they repeated it around 78 or something like that okay and oh. if you watch that you'll go oh, oh my god this is where they got that scene from this is where they got that scene from so David Frost salutes the Beatles that's it okay yeah. I okay, definitely have to check that out <laughs> Uh, I think it's on YouTube uh, in a very kind of crummy condition, right. you know, but it's right. watchable. I mean, enough to, <laughs> so you can get it. And you probably say, yeah, yeah. oh my God, they must have seen this to do the ruddles. Yes. 
Well, you know, I just I think it's so interesting because nobody's ever seen those early cuts of the Long and Winding Road. No. And I think I think that it would be worth seeing mm-hmm. because it would. You know, I'm interested in the Beatles as a historical event as well, mm-hmm. and so I'm I'm interested. I'm always interested in. How did they see themselves? How did that change? How did people see them over time? So in 1975, or whenever they, you know, I think that the I, I think they were were cutting. Neil was cutting together. Neil Aspinall was cutting together uh, the Long and Winding Road. You know, in 71 or 72, yeah, like yeah. right after they broke up. Mm-hmm. Um, I would be very interested in seeing that just to see how different that was from the anthology cut that we saw and then there's another cut of anthology which you can kind of you can see occasionally which you know has all sorts of interesting little snippets like you know everybody's being rougher on Yoko Um, (laughs) you know I mean like you can see how the sausage gets made a little bit and I'm always interested in that with the Beatles because uh, that is so much of the story. How yeah, the I haven't made. seen that uncut version. I've had it available, but it's usually like priced too too yeah, much higher than right. I want to pay for it. So it's like right. I go right. for maybe not much more. I mean, have you seen it then? So I've seen snippets. Okay. I've never, I've never for exactly the same as you. I don't want to spend seventy five bucks. Uh, because I don't know how different it is, really. Yeah. Um, I mean, if it says, and, oh, like, one more sentence, it's like, yeah, oh, and fuck yeah. Yoko. You know, oh, well, yeah, big right, deal. Exactly. I don't care. Yeah, you know, <laughs> right. right. And, and Yoko stole my, my McVitie's biscuits. That's that's a that's a long-running joke on, on my Beatles blog. Hey, Bo, hey, doll blog. Everybody's talking. Always reminding about, you know, George Harrison going fucking ballistic in 1969 when... When Yoko steals some of his biscuits, um, yeah, you know those guys. The, the thing about the Beatles, one of the things that made them so special was they're so goddamn funny. Yes. I mean, like they're really smart, and because they're really smart, they're really funny. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so for me, I would, you know, it's funny that you say this. I do bystander because the Beatles weren't hiring. That's what <laughs> that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a Beatle, but. But when I was 14 or whenever, and we're ready, okay, I'm ready to go, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'll be Lennon or McCartney to someone's Lennon or McCartney. I didn't find that person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went to did comedy writing instead. It was, I, it was a conscious decision. It was like, well, I'd love to be a performer. I'd love to be a Beatle. I'd love to play music. But I don't have a band, and I don't know of anybody Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, I don't think you know. Like for example, one of the things that makes the Beatles so fascinating is that there's a different. Each of them is musical in a different way. Yeah. You know, so McCartney is definitely one of those guys who's just sort of naturally musical. Right. Um, surely he, he's practiced in immense amounts, but but he's just sort of naturally gifted. You can see. Lennon's really interested in it as a way to get across whatever he wants to get across. Mm-hmm. George is interested in it for different reasons. Ringo's interested in it for different reasons. So, you know, it, it's the, the alchemy of those four um, is, is just truly incredible. Yeah. It, it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't, that those four people came to, were in the same place at the same time, coming together in that particular way is. It's an incalculable odd, you know. So now, it's interesting. Now, what got you into the Beatles in the first place? Well, um, I, how do I say this? 
I don't, you know, I don't want to be like one of those guys that was like, oh yeah, I was into this when I was a little boy. I was into this when I was a little boy. But I was into the Beatles as a little kid too. Okay. Um, my aunt, it was all the same to me. Like the the comedy stuff mm-hmm. and the Beatles stuff yeah. was the same because uh, I, my mother was raising me by herself. I was spending a lot of time with a, a younger aunt. Um, so every Friday night, I would stay over my Aunt Peg's. My Aunt Peg was 60-some-odd. And we would watch old movies and all sorts of things. And so I knew old culture, you know, mm-hmm. Abbott Costello, all this, Marx Brothers, all that stuff from when I was a little boy. And you can see this in Lampoon, too. The 70s, there's this period where old stuff, nostalgia, they called it then, but it, it's just sort of old stuff, is being repurposed in, into the culture for the first time. Right. And so that was happening, and I was really interested in, like, say, the movie King Kong. I loved it, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> uh, and then my younger aunt, who had been a Beatles fan originally, and St. Louis, believe it or not, I don't know why this is, but it, it could be because George's sister lives near St. Louis, or lived, I think she's still alive, mm-hmm. Louise, yes. lived, lived uh, outside in downstate Illinois, uh, not too far from St. Louis. But in any case... The Beatles were always a big deal in St. Louis, even after they broke up. Hmm. So, like, yeah, there was just a bunch of stuff. There was there was always a bunch of and and Mary, my younger aunt. So I'd stay Friday nights with Peggy, and then Saturday nights with with Mary. And Mary was you know all of twenty two in nineteen seventy three or four, whatever it was, um, and totally into music, totally into all her old Beatles stuff. I was just absorbing like like crazy I was absorbing all of that I was absorbing there's a picture of me from before I could talk <laughs> listening to back in the USSR <laughs> and like totally you can see by my face I'm totally like digging it and so you know I don't know it's it's weird it was just I was I, I've always been interested in them and I've always been interested in the sort of things around them um, like like Nielsen, like Python, like, you know, all that stuff. Um, It is still, I, you know, because the world is so frightening right now, I will probably, tonight, I will probably sit down and, you know, watch something about swinging London. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) You know, it's my happy place. Yeah. I'm I'm doing similar things. I mean, I have to work from home. When I play the music, I'm playing like Kinks today, but you know, Are it's you? like I'm playing, you know, that type of stuff. Early, yeah, early Fleetwood Mac a little bit, you know, things yeah, like yeah. that. But you know, I do play a lot of Beatles, so right now I'm taking kind of a holiday from it. But you know, yes, you do, uh, you do that, you know. right? You know, um, um, what kind of kinks? What kinks are you listening to? Uh, late '60s stuff right now, but you uh-huh. know, I, I'll listen to their whole career. I don't even mind yeah. Phobia that much. It's like, yeah. you know, yeah. but uh, I actually, you know, since we're mentioning kinks, is the the late '70s stuff on Arista. Uh-huh. That's my favorite uh-huh. era, and which really? is not necessarily everybody's favorite era. You know, I don't it's think like, I've ever heard it really. Um, well, their big hits during that period were like Come Dancing and Destroyer. Oh, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, okay. Okay. Jukebox I, music, dance, things yeah. like that, you know. But it was there was none of this theming and stuff, you know. They weren't yeah. doing like preservation, and they weren't doing soap yeah. opera and those type of things yeah. that they did during the early seventies. Yeah. It was just straight well, rock and roll, you know. To see, this is interesting because I really, you know, speaking about speaking about bystander. So what's the com- what's the connection between that and bystander? Mm-hmm. Well, this is what the connection is. <laughs> if you look at if you look at um, the Kinks, if you look at starting with Sgt. Pepper, you mm-hmm. know, 
there's this sense of you get your skills right to be able to be a pop to work in a popular medium mm-hmm. and then what what's the next thing you do you create like a film director creates a bigger experience right and that's what bystander is yeah because for me i could i graduated from humor pieces you know new yorker waiting for saturday night live whatever mm-hmm. to doing a parody of harry potter which was a which was the you know i designed it and did it all i mean it was like it was considered to be it was trying to be immersive it was for people who were complete harry potter fanatics and i was making jokes about it's like um, all you need is cash yeah you go you know or, or board of the range you go deeply into a fandom and you talk about it as a fan you talk about it as a as a fellow appreciator but you're trying to create an immersive intense experience right and that for me was the bystander is the culmination of that where every single page i'm looking at it and going okay you know how does this fit with the rest um and you know i sometimes i wish i had help because i (laughs) because i can't because it's so big and i have to do so many issues i have to do four a year Mm. and each one is you know 80 pages or whatever it is it's a lot of stuff yeah so um you know some issues i feel i do a better job than others but at this point with now 14 done and 15 half done um I think you can look at it as a brick of work and go, okay, this is what this guy was trying to create. And it's very similar to, I was, you know, I was arguing on my website uh, <laughs> with somebody, I love Revolver, but I prefer Prep Pepper. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh no, Revolver's got better songs. I'm like, absolutely right. Better songs than Revolver. Mm-hmm. But Pepper is different because Pepper is from the beginning it's trying to create a unified experience right from from the cover to the inserts to the songs to everything yeah and the interesting thing about it is mark that everybody perceived it as that unified experience they got it we yeah. look at it and we go oh it's a concept album but it's there's no concept right you know like yeah what's the concept there's no concept it's just bullshit it's just mccartney being <laughs> bullshitty and i go no 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 it's Pepper so fundamentally sums up what was going on in a small, very important group of English creators from late 1966 to early 1967. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it encapsulates its time. That's why there's a famous writer, there's a writer who says something famous about he drives across the country, the United States, the first week the pepper is out, and he says, all I heard on the radio, every radio <laughs> from New York to Los Angeles was Sgt. Pepper. Yeah. And and so it was, it's great, it's great amazing quality is that it summed up its time. Right. That means that it's not going to age as well as, say, Abbey Road. Yeah. Because, because it's of its time. Right. You know? For me, Sergeant, for me, Sergeant Pepper, and this is after knowing their whole career. It wasn't when I first heard it. Um, it was finally where they could sit down and say, "All right, what can we do if we don't have to do all these TV shows and tours and yes. personal appearances and if we could right. just sit down and right. basically create a concert experience." 
That's right. why they put the audience on there at the beginning right. and a little bit right. at the end, just to kind of say, right. you know, there isn't really a theme other than, hey, if we could create our own show and yes. put it on a disc, this yes. is what we would do. Yes. You know? And uh, uh, instead of all the chaos and all the other nonsense when they went to the Philippines and all the other places, yes. you know, it's like right. they could just, you know, create right. their own world, as it were. And, right. you know, once they did that, they said, hey, this is kind of fun, yes. but you can only create your own world so many times, and, you know, along with everything right. else, I think after Abbey Road, it's like, okay, we created our world about five times here now. Right. Uh, what else can we do? We could just keep doing it, I suppose, right. you know, but, right. you know. Right. Um. right. <laughs> you know, this is an interesting question. Uh, well, first of all, I'll tell you, uh, do you know that the, the crowd noise comes from beyond the fringe? Yes. Okay, you know. I, okay. yeah. I figure you know all the stuff. <laughs> I've been maybe reading Mark Lewison for years. Yeah, <laughs> anyway, there no. you go. So uh, maybe other people don't. Yeah. Um, but no, I that's fine that to say. Because, yeah. of course, there's tremendous overlap between that four and the Beatles four, too. Yeah. You know? Um, the thing is, we, we go about, we go we talk about this with the uh, on Adol blog. I'm a believer. Uh, people say, oh, you know, the Beatles quit, what, they quit the perfect time. They quit while they were ahead. And, and I always say, hmm. The thing about the Beatles is that nobody expected them, and then once they were started, nobody knew what they were going to do next. And the, their ability to reinvent themselves incredibly fast and, and incredibly yeah. completely. And so I think to myself, well, you're right, surely. You know, like, that was a good time to leave, and the, the 70s were not the 60s, and who knows, maybe they would have deteriorated because it's usually people saying, oh, they would have, you know... It would have been silly love songs or whatever. I think to myself, yeah, except that in 1963, nobody was thinking about Abbey Road. Or nobody was thinking about Rubber Soul. Right. After Rubber Soul, nobody was thinking about Sgt. Pepper. Sgt. Mm -hmm. Pepper, nobody was thinking about the White Album. The White Album, nobody was thinking about... You know, it's like they were constantly evolving. Right. And so I'm not so sure that they wouldn't have continued to pull rabbits out of their hat because... Yeah because of the process that because of the people that they were and the process that they were doing and there would have been albums better albums or worse albums but um, but you know I just think when you're talking about geniuses and I don't know if they're all geniuses individually but certainly as a group they were a genius mm -hmm. I think that's where and, and it, similarly that first early staff of National Lampoon from say 70 71 to 75 or 74 yeah. um, you know there's definitely the group genius there yeah. that's absolutely true and it's it's unfair as most people do Brian says Doug Kenny was our Marilyn Monroe you know <laughs> and people and, and because he was handsome and because he was a good interview and all that sort of stuff and because he was great and he was a funny great guy um, but but Lampoon would have been nothing like what it was without Henry Beard. Henry Beard is a, mm -hmm. a humor editor, humor magazine editor. I looked to Henry Beard and I'm just like, man, you're the fucking real stuff, buddy. That's great. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it was all of them. And it was, and it, it, they would have been much lesser without O'Donoghue. They would have been lesser without Jerry Sussman. Yeah. You know, Bruce McCall. People who now, you know, are more or less... Well, Brian's a perfect example. Brian gave added something that nobody else... Nobody, you know, just a little tip. 
you don't edit somebody like Brian McConaughey. <laughs> he, he gives you this thing, and you're like, wow, that's weird, Brian. What are you trying to get at with this? Oh, okay, okay, good. I think that'll work. <laughs> what about making that a little shorter? Okay, yes, maybe a little shorter, or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But he's, those guys were all so formed as creative people, also, you know, also, right. you know, uh, already set. Mm-hmm. That there's no, you know, like, so with Bystander, it's much more, what I'm trying to do is get those those old war horses, get them in here, so that people, excuse me, <coughs> people who are younger can look and go, oh, that's how it's done, yeah. and then do their version of that, mm -hmm. because their version is going to be different. And with the onion people, too, I do that. Pardon mm -hmm. me, I've got a frog in my throat. That's okay. Um, so you tired of this yet? Yeah. No. Um, <laughs> I was going to say a couple of comparisons, though. I mean, it's like for everybody who says, well, what would the Beatles be like? In a certain sense, uh, if they stayed together, the, the certain sense, I guess it would be like the Rolling Stones. You know, because yeah, they perhaps. kept making good albums for at least another decade. And, you know, now it's got to the point, and every artist seems to do this, they get to the point uh, where if somebody puts out a new album, Nobody cares. They just wanted to hear the old hits, you know, and it, yeah, it just yeah, happens. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then right. the comparison for Lampoon, you know, would be like Mad, even. Uh, you know, yeah. it's like Mad, you know, now everybody always says, you know, well, it used to be good in fill-in-the-blank date. Right. I think somebody, one of the writers said, Mad is always the funniest whenever you were 11. You know? It's, <laughs> yeah. You know, I and, and right. it's like, yeah, and I think somebody else said this about Mad. The best issue of Mad was the issue before you started reading it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so... <laughs> And there's some but, truth to that. Yeah, <laughs> some no, weird, perverse way, but uh, you know, and, you know, in a certain way, you know, it's like had the Beatles stayed together, you know, great. But you know, uh, I think after time, people would say enough already or something. You know, yeah. it sounds incredible, uh, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> um, yeah. So I don't. You know, who who can say? I, I think you know. I'm a big believer in the idea, which some people don't know about and some people do um i i think that in in 1979 the beatles the four beatles signed a piece of paper which basically said we are preparing to perform again right together mm -hmm. and so you know that and it was speaking to the non-beatles obsessives who are listening <laughs> it was to give them a stronger legal case against beatlemania right. the um the the sound-alike band that was on Broadway. I actually think that that was legitimate. I don't think that was just a legal maneuver. I think that, and I think that there are a lot of circumstantial things that suggested that Lennon and McCartney certainly were thinking about writing together again. Yeah. And then if you have Lennon and McCartney, um, the hard one would have been to get would have been Harrison. But you know, and I think that the the you know the anthology only happened because Harrison, Harrison suddenly needed a lot of money. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, lucky for us, he did. Uh, but in any case, I, I just I have a strong I have a strong belief in the creative individual. I really do. Um, that 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 we can't necessarily predict what will happen. But if there's somebody who is really gifted, um, that they that their knack doesn't go away. Yeah. Uh, maybe it gets slower or something like that. So you know, like for example, uh, would what would Doug Henney have done? I, I don't know what he what he would have done, but 
Um, <laughs> Caddyshack I, 12. No, just kidding. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, maybe. But, uh, but, you know, I think he had a lot more to say. Yeah, I think he would have. Actually, I think he would you have know. tried completely different films, and I think he would have been totally aghast at the fact that they bothered to make a Caddyshack 2. You know, <laughs> you know right. regardless if it was good or bad, you know, it had nothing to do yeah. with that. It's like, I don't think he would never want an Animal House 2, you know, or yeah. anything else yeah. that he ever yeah. did. He was yeah. like a one-and-done right. type person. There was no Board of the Rings 2, or whatever you want to yes. call it. You know, it was like, this is my piece, I, you know, this is yes. the uh, the um, um what is the famous book he did? I can't even think of it. The 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 yearbook, you know, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the high right. school yearbook or whatever. Right. You know. right. Uh, right. Right. You know, there was never a sequel to that. I mean, the sequel, I guess, right. could be Animal House in a certain way, but you know, sure. it was, sure. wasn't you could say that. a direct print sequel. You know, you know, they didn't do mm-hmm. that. You know, or he didn't mm-hmm. do that. You know, and I think. And even the Beatles didn't really do that, you know, in comparing yeah. it to that. You know, they, the, you yes. could argue Magical Mystery Tour could be Sgt. Pepper Part 2, but, you know, right. it just happens to be because it has songs that came out the same year. But right. it's its own thing, you know. By the way, i got to say, I, because you brought it up, I probably wouldn't have said it unless you brought it up, yeah. but Magical Mystery Tour is pro- it's probably my, it's probably my second favorite Beatles album. And I, I, you know, yeah. I know that that's a weird thing to say, but I, I love the songs. Yeah. I, I love the songs. I think it's, I think it's once again, I think it's a snapshot of culture that I particularly like. Um, there's a, I'm always nattering on about this on Hey Del Blanc. There's a certain point where the, the, you, the psychedelic culture was 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 still sort of utopian mm-hmm. you know there was this there was a sense that if everybody could drop acid then then a lot of the shit would fall away and we'd be able to move forward on certain things and all the rest yep. and um i've never taken acid i, I have no opinion about this <laughs> except that i like i like the optimism and i like the art uh mm-hmm. and because i think the art is this weird melding of technology and psychedelia and vaudeville old-fashioned stuff yep. that's the thing that's great about fucking pepper yeah. is that it's 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 stuff from 19 you know it's like they're all dressed up like they're from 1915 right that's that's crazy <laughs> you know i mean like that that's not that i don't know how to say this but but that's the kind of that's the kind of there's there's a there's a sort of there's a cultural confidence that you see in that particular era because they say we're so confident mm-hmm. that we can go back to other eras and pluck things out and change them to how we like them yeah. and use them. And, of course, you know, postmodernism and all that stuff. Uh, so partly that's what I'm trying to do with Bystander, yeah. is going back to 60s and 70s culture mm-hmm. and saying, you know... I like this particular look. I think this particular look is good. I think this type of material is good. I think Seymour Quast is a is you know is a huge hero of mine. I'm running his fucking drawings <laughs> like on the same sort of way that you're trying to you're trying to kind of create a world of the old and the new, and you take it all and you make it into something that encompasses more than just yourself, right? More than just you know an attempt to make a buck <laughs> or right. be popular or whatever it is um, 
So I definitely look back. There is a type of illustration that you see in the in the movie Yellow Submarine. Um, who, by the way, not Quast and Milton Glaser. It's a guy named Heinz Edelman. You probably know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But so those guys, the American designers, Seymour Quast and Milton Glaser at Pushman Studios, which is a direct uh, influence, the bystander, they influenced at that time uh, Heinz Edelman and the design of uh, Yellow Submarine. There's a type of illustration in that movie that I've since real, I've since discovered that it was a particular type of technology that was being used in the mid '60s, which I'm always trying to figure out an excuse to get into the bystander because it's got this great. You can use these old-fashioned illustrations, but but you change them in such a way so it's like, you know, I did a parody. Probably my best parody was a parody of. Um, Downton Abbey <laughs> and it was a bunch of illustrations it was a it was a story that I wrote I had to do it so quickly I was writing it and illustrating it simultaneously and it was all these illustrations from Edwardian Victorian Edwardian popular science magazines because they're copyright free right and it's the same sort of thing you're getting this weird kind of mixture <laughs> anyway Anyway, your listeners now know way too much about my <laughs> internal process. Well, I guess that's why we we, we find similar tastes and things, and you know, seemingly yeah. get along here because I mean, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you yeah, know right. all my background. You know, it's like I yeah, write. What is your background? So I, I I write books about comic books and animation and music, oh, I didn't know that. Okay. and I do have a Beatles <laughs> book. Uh, it's good. called Mark Arnold Picks on the Beatles, and I just write my own. Op- <laughs> I write my own opinions about all their uh, songs, group and solo, released and unreleased, up until about ten years ago, because that's when I published it. But yeah. uh, I did two monkeys books, um, okay. and then as far as animation, I have a book about Total Television, which is the people that made Underdog and Tennessee Tuxedo. I love those. Yeah. Uh, did a book about Patty Freeling. They did Pink Panther and a number of other cartoons, and. Uh, Let's see. Um, did a Dennis the Menace book. I lo- love Harvey Comics. I did a Harvey Comics book. You know, things like that. So Great, great. This is all really interesting. So um, a lot of my stuff is, you know, stuff that I just grew up with. It is like 60s and 70s stuff. A lot of it's mm-hmm. based in New York more than anywhere else or England or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, and L.A., I guess, to a certain extent, you know. But, I mean, that's, and, you know, I'm always fascinated with that stuff, you know. And mm-hmm. it's like, mm-hmm. so. When you came up with the American Bystander, I said, at last, somebody is putting out right. something that kind of, you know, is like that. Because I was saying, you know, it, like, you know, I don't know if you saw later examples, um, you know, of like later issues of, say, Cracked or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And they're just mm-hmm. poor examples of what was because they lost sure. all their artists and writers. Right. And even later issues of Lampoon, you know, were just... Exactly. Pathetic, you know. I, you know, I'm one yes. of these ones. I don't think it stopped in '75. I think it was good until probably about '83, '84, and then uh-huh. it really, uh-huh. you know, fell off after that. Um, but uh, you know, it's like everything has its place, has its day, and stuff like that. Yeah, but it's like, where, where do these artists and writers go? It's like they got to do something, right. you know. So you know, Mark, it, it's it's really interesting because because at this point, the 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 task ahead of me is. And I've said this to people before. I'm, tr- I'm building this for a hundred years. Yeah. I want to build it for a hundred years. If it's not, I mean, it's, it's we've been in business for five. Mm-hmm. Um, that's amazing. Like <laughs> five <laughs> years. 
because it's just me, you know, like yeah. doing it. Um, but but I really I I really want it to be an institution. All right, I want to thank you, Michael, for being my guest today on the show. Uh, is there any website uh, that you'd like to plug, or any email, or how 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 can people get in contact with you or the American Bystander? Yes, uh, I'll tell you all of that. But before I do, I just want to say it was a real pleasure for me too. Um, as before we started, I said to you, "Oh man, I'm feeling a little low energy, and I'm trying not to overwork because of the virus." Right. Right. Um, uh, and. But I've really enjoyed our conversation, and I, and I hope that your listeners enjoy it too. Um, it's it's nice to it's always nice to talk with somebody who's as passionate about these topics as you are. Um, well, the, there's an easy way to get in touch with with me. Um, my email, of course, is publisher at americanbystander.org. Our website is americanbystander.org, and you can download a couple of sample issues, full PDFs, so you'll get a sense of what this is all about if you haven't seen issues. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's, of course, our Patreon, which is www.patreon.com slash bystander. Um, that's how you subscribe, and you can subscribe uh, at the $5 level, and you get a PDF, or the $20 level, and you get a print copy. And the print magazine is more like a book. It's more like a soft-covered book. Mm -hmm. So nobody's ever in five years said, this is $20. It's just, these are too expensive. You're right. ripping us off. Uh, I think you'll find them very worthwhile. <laughs> and then finally, the, we're, we're about to launch a website, which I'm not going to talk about, uh, which is, that seems kind of strange, doesn't it? But no, but there is <laughs> something that we, we, we've been working on this thing, um, which is coming out soon, which I think people are really going to like. But in the meantime, we're doing something special for this particular time. Uh, we're doing a free Substack newsletter uh, called Quarantine Cavalcade. And so, uh, let me see how you can get to that. I'm going to go on my web. I'm going to go on the web right now <laughs> um, and get to it myself, and I can tell you. But but that is we we are um, running material from our writers and artists and other people too, um, you know, new people as well. Uh, that we're ab about this time, but just sort of about anything if you want and people are really liking it um it's the american bystander dot substack dot com um that seems to be where you know we're doing all this via email so i've never really given out a url before <laughs> yeah i think the 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 american bystander dot substack stack dot com uh, will will uh you can poke around the website. You can subscribe for the emails and all that sort of thing. But if you ever have any questions or you just want to chat with me <laughs> about the Beatles, um, okay. I am available at publisher at AmericanBystander.com. Okay. And what's your Beatles blog again? Well, it's called HeyDoleBlog.com. <laughs> okay. H-E-Y-D-U-L-L-B-L-O-G. So like Hey Bulldog, but spoonerized, I guess. Right, right. Switched. <laughs> um, it started in 2008. It was a bunch of people from the New York publishing business who all realized we, we knew each other and but we never talked about the Beatles and we all realized like oh we're all huge Beatles fans <laughs> so we started doing this and it was me and Ed Park and Ed Park was then Ed, I think he might have been editor of the Believer then he was for a while but while he was doing the site and then we also there was also a fellow named Devin McKinney who um, was a wonderful writer and critic if you haven't um if, Mark, if you haven't read his book on the Beatles called Magic Circles, hmm. you definitely ought to. It's okay. really, really good. I'm not familiar it's, it's, with that it, one, yeah. Yeah, okay. it's, oh, it's, 
you know, if I had an extra copy, I'd send one to you right now. Okay. But um, so Devin and I, and now we have a person named Nancy Carr who's writing stuff. So we have great people. Um, the commenters kind of ebb and flow, uh, you know. But but we have a reputation of having particularly good comments and particularly respectful and interesting discussions, which I'm always trying to moderate. But with bystander, it's not like I have a ton of extra time. Right. <laughs> anyway, but yeah. So check it out if you like the Beatles. It, it, there's there's probably 800 posts at this point, point. Wow. and it's all sorts of weird stuff about the Beatles and people talking about their obsessions and a lot of things that have become kind of common beliefs um, like for example that John Lennon wasn't purposely trying to break up the Beatles he was trying to get Paul McCartney's attention mm -hmm. um, that was first sort of that theory was first sort of put out on Dull Blog in the early days and now it's you, just, you read it in Rolling Stone that it was all this big misunderstanding mm -hmm. and so um I, I do it for fun, but people say they like it, so check it out if, if you like the Beatles. All right. Well, I thank you again, and it's been great talking with you. You too. You too. Thank you so much for your time and for everybody's attention. I hope it was. Uh, I hope it was half as fun it was for me. Okay. All right, and have a great night then. You too. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Michael Gerber, for being my special guest. Episode number seventy-four will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2020, Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night. Headed home to a cardboard hut with duct tape doors. I'm paying Be glad it isn't yours Now get up Crap Mountain 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 Get up That Don't fall back Don't fall back Don't fall back